Hey everybody, welcome to episode three of Observations with Rob Liefeld. You are listening to Observations with Rob Liefeld. I can't thank you enough for all of the support that you have given uh, our first two uh, podcasts that we launched and, and just uh, thank you for all the great feedback. I am so thankful that you guys are enjoying this journey that we're going on. This is... Uh, Recollection of my journey with comic books as I came into consuming comic books as I did in 1975 and never looked back. And the great period that I was introduced to comic books, this this kind of seminal period, it's not just nostalgia-driven. It is 100% established that... So much of what I was fortunate to encounter as a kid, looking at these amazing stories come to life on the page with the most dynamic storytellers of really any age, the, the, these characters that were created by these amazing talents, these creators, these would go on to now become part of your larger pop culture experience, your cinematic uh, experience with the MCU, your television experience with uh, Marvel titles on on whether it was the ABC network or whether it was Netflix, even you know the stuff that's been on freeform with cloak and dagger is born in this age. So this uh, body of work that, really inspires what is to follow because the guys that follow this are directly inspired by all of this and they go on to create a bunch of stuff that impacts the culture as well and I should know that because I am one of those guys but we are not there yet by a long stretch but we're going to get there because those are some great times and some great stories. The uh, period that uh, we're entering right now uh, it lines up perfectly because uh, one of the next and, and certainly I think one of the biggest new offerings from the Marvel Cinematic Universe that they have coming up is the Eternals. The Eternals. They uh, were rumored for quite some time and then last San Diego, uh, Mr. Kevin Feige came out on stage in Hall H. I was there with my son. We were right in that front middle section as he came out and uh, confirmed for everybody uh, the Eternals film, the cast brought some of the players out to much applause. And you know, the funny thing is, I was looking at this uh, group of Hall H people, and it, which included my son, who was like, who he, he's 20 now, so he was 19 last summer, and my son, Luke, turned to me and said, who's the Eternals? And I've seen this in uh, other relatives, nephews, cousins, some friends. Everybody wants to get read up and sped up on what Marvel is bringing as fast as they possibly can because nobody wants to be left behind and nobody wants to be uninformed. And the great thing about the Eternals is I, I don't know that as many people are going to be doing the deep dive in, in preparation for all that is to come with the Eternals. Now, here, here's where I'm going to speed you ahead uh, after the Hall H panel and the announcement and the excitement surrounding the announcement of the Eternals. 
there is a party uh, every Saturday night of Comic-Con, so annually, and has been for the better part of two decades, thrown by Entertainment Weekly. The magazine, the website, the, the entity that is known as Entertainment Weekly, this is their big, gigantic, mega uh, party where really everybody there is uh, there to celebrate kind of the end of the show. It's perfectly placed on the schedule on Saturday evening because it signifies that really tomorrow, Sunday, the Sunday of the show is the final lap. Most people uh, in the know at the show, longtime attendees will tell you that Hall H, Saturday at Hall H, most of the time Marvel Saturday at Hall H, closes the giant film portion of San Diego Comic-Con. Once they make their announcements, it's kind of over for film. Everybody else who had something to say has already said it, arrived. I think last year it was either Thursday or Friday, Tom, Tom Cruise came out, dropped the Top Gun announcement. They previewed Terminator. Um, all of the big players come in before Marvel. Marvel has established over a decade that the real estate that they occupy on Saturday the 5, 5.30 to 7 o'clock p.m. Hall H to those nearly 8,000 people. That is where they drop the mic. They bring the big performers, the big announcements. Everybody gets crazy and jacked and runs out with their heads on fire. I know I've done it. I've been that guy several times. When they announced the Avengers in uh, 20, uh, 2010, following showing clips of the Thor movie and Captain America First Avenger, uh, Kevin Feige had dismissed everybody and basically was ready to say goodbye. And then Downey Jr. came out and was like, isn't there something else? And one by one, Renner, Hemsworth, Scarlett Johansson, Ruffalo, Evans, they all came out and for the first time the Avengers were assembled on stage. I had never experienced anything like that. The raucous energy of the crowd was amazing, phenomenal, overwhelming, you, you, you felt yourself caught up in the moment. I've, I've already established how near and dear the Avengers are to my heart. So I was one of those guys. I bolted across the street and I had a dinner on the books for 7 p.m. with my comic book compadres, uh, Eric Larson, Todd McFarlane, Robert Kirkman, and Eric Stevenson, all partners in Image now. At the time, Eric was just the publisher. He's now the publisher and partner, but... I was short of breath and I just, I think I, I didn't stop talking for maybe an hour telling them the entire details of Hall H and how Downey Jr. came out and introduced everybody. So this is the kind of energy that, that, that Hall H brings. It brings the big, big announcements, the big juice, the stuff that people want to absolutely freak out over. Uh, the only time they didn't occupy that spot, they abdicated that on... Uh, in 2015, and they gave it to Fox, where Fox introduced their footage for X-Men Apocalypse, and more importantly, a little movie uh, called Deadpool, which uh, also, having been at both, was equal to the excitement with the Avengers, showed the trailer, Chris Hardwick was overwhelmed, stood up, asked them all to play the trailer again. Asked, asked the people, said, let's, let's just play the trailer again because the, the fans said, one more time, one more time. It was crazy, guys. It was absolutely crazy. But that, that Marvel didn't show that year, didn't have that slot. They gave it to Fox, who showed up with Marvel films. 
They're, they're, they're Marvel movies and uh, same energy, same juice. So, and I remember 2015, that entertainment weekly party again, everybody, everybody, all the talent that's been there, um, some comic book talent, mostly film TV talent, all of the cast and crews that you've seen, they are wrapping up. They're getting back on planes. They are taking the train, the cars, you know, this is, this is the end for them. This is the end of their weekend because Sunday generally goes to either TV panels in Hall H or not much at all. So the reason I'm setting the stage here is that last, in 2019, that Saturday night, there's uh, at the Entertainment Weekly Party, which is held at the Hard Rock Hotel on one of the uh, different rooftop levels they have because they jet out to the side at different points. There's a couple different quote-unquote rooftop levels where pools and it looks out on depends on which floor that you get your rooftop level and what side of the street it looks out on but at this particular 2019 celebration you know in the there's three bungalows and those generally have large casts of some of the bigger projects that were announced down there in years past game of thrones has occupied a bungalow uh the cast of X-Men Days of Future Past. So you got Jennifer Lawrence. You got, you know, everybody who was in that bungalow. Uh, you know, the Avengers, Westworld, you name it. Different cast congregate in these special bungalow areas. And my wife and I were in this Marvel bungalow. And we were uh, meeting Richard Madden, you know, who uh, is playing Icarus in The Eternals. And, you know, obviously Game of Thrones is over and he's long been, you know, finished with that project. But we were gushing over him and uh, very excited about the fact that he is going to be in the Eternals. And so all the different cast of the Eternals is uh, is wandering around. Not Angelina Jolie, not Angelina Jolie, but uh, uh, a lot lot of talent was 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 uh, was there. Taron Egerton, who had been in Rocket Man, obviously. Uh, was in the bungalow. So this, this place was hopping. It was hopping. It's really fun. Uh, I bumped into Lin-Manuel Miranda, who had, if you weren't aware, had worn a Deadpool costume the entire day on the show floor when he was there so that he could wander around and not be bothered. And he had just revealed that and showed me the photos and we were having a good laugh. And I'm about to exit the bungalow and I feel a hand on my shoulder and it is the wonderful Kevin Feige the um head of Marvel films right the guy behind all these movies that you have been enjoying for the last 10 years and he says Rob how you doing I have seen Kevin at umpteen events over the last decade uh so uh Kevin is is uh not uh big enough to not talk with comic book folks and I am going to discuss how given that Kevin and I are roughly the same age and that some of his 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 love for this era that I'm talking to you is evident it it's the the evidence is uh right in front of you that uh case in point Carol Danvers Thanos the Eternals what do these all share these all share that they were introduced 1975 1976 1977 and they have all played huge roles in how he has shaped produced and uh, 
manufactured the Marvel Cinematic Universe that has made everybody so so crazy and so excited and obviously done extremely well making them the number one branded content in entertainment and don't think they don't know it trust me they they are aware, well aware and Kevin has done you know great things in pulling this off but he says hey Rob how you doing and I turned around to him and I said Kevin great presentation today great presentation and he said oh thanks man this is word for word really really super genuine kind guy and he looked relieved as well I think these are always a burden that that gets lifted off of off of each of these executives producers directors everybody who you know it's a big deal going up there in Hall and H you got to at Hall H you got to bring the magic you got to bring the noise okay and he had and I think you know the the weekend and the the concern will people react to this that's all behind him so he's really relaxed says thank you very much I said I really enjoyed the Eternals most of all I'm so excited and he said why can I ask why why the Eternals I said Kevin it's all Jack Kirby this is the first project that you guys are making that is 100% Jack Kirby written illustrated to be honest I mean it, there's no Stan in this there's no Stan Lee this is Jack's 100% pure uh, imagination his I think some kind of the culmination of everything that he'd been working towards his entire career they they have called the Eternals if you look at Marvel's own trade editions they're very expensive omnibus which is long out of print uh, they call it kind of like his last saga his last great contribution and it's a big deal because it, it it impacted the Marvel Universe in, in a significant way and it came I mean literally you know years 40 years into Jack's career okay so this is a big deal and I said Kevin it's because it's, it's Jack Kirby and he pauses for a minute and he says it just bums me out that that he wasn't able to see all this I said I know um I don't know that Kevin knew Jack um I obviously knew, knew Jack visited with Jack published with Jack uh shared space with Jack dined with Jack so I don't know that Kevin met with him uh, I don't know that Kevin was in a position uh, prior to Jack passing away in 1994 to have interacted with him. So I, I literally am telling you this without knowing. But he said, "Yeah, I'm just so it, it's uh, it's it's a bummer he didn't get to see this come to life." I mean, because he said, "You know, Stan got to see it. Stan got to see it." And I said, "No, no, I'm 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 aware. I, I it 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 was obviously transformational for Stan and and uh, for the fact that he got to." watch it all unfold and how his work tickled people and excited inspired people and so much of what you saw was also Jack Kirby and now you're getting the full Kirby let's just call the Eternals the full Kirby and uh, Jack wrote it he dialogued it scripted it illustrated it created the characters named them designed them and this is an amazing amazing project and I cannot wait to see uh, at least one piece of filmed footage from it I'm dying you know the only thing from the Eternals that we've seen to date is that glimpse that we got of the Celestials in the first Guardians of the Galaxy we've talked about the Celestials but they you saw them in the distance in that one film clip and they're moving you know slowly and they're lumbering and they're giant ominous and 
I when I saw 2014's Guardians of the Galaxy, I was like, oh my gosh, the, the Celestials. That's that's uh, that's Jack Kirby's, you know, magnificent imagination. Those those cosmic deities that so much of the Marvel Universe are tied to now as a result of Jack introducing them in the pages of Eternals issue 2, 1976. Now, that's the glimpse that we've gotten. That's the interaction that we've had with the Eternals so far in the Marvel Cinematic Universe. And now we're about to get a movie with Richard Madden and Salma Hayek and Angelina Jolie. And uh, gosh, who who else is in this incredible Gemma Chan... Uh, Brian Tyree Henry, Don Lee, Barry Keegan, Kit Harrington. I mean, you guys, this this movie is stacked, right? And there's so much we don't know. But so then, cut to D23, which took place in late August here in Anaheim, my backyard, and uh, at the Disneyland or at the Anaheim Convention Center, and uh, on the D23, the Marvel Comics, the Cinematic Universe panel. This is when Kevin uh, went a step further than he did in Hall H. He brought the entire cast out. They all stood shoulder to shoulder. Angelina Jolie, now Kit Harington comes out, Gemma Chan, Salma Hayek. And they're all dressed to the nines as they always do for the crowds. They look like a million bucks. They're movie stars. But behind them on screen are their costumed visages. The images of them as they appear in 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 the film, just in these, you know, still photographic shots, maybe from the waist up, the trunk up. And I remember, you know, looking at them really closely and I didn't feel like they were maybe the best uh, representation or adaptation of Jack's costumes because I'm going to go on record, the Eternals have kick-ass visuals. I mean, why wouldn't they? They're Jack Kirby. And this is Jack Kirby who, if you want to know about Jack and the Eternals, you got to understand that Jack had left Marvel in 1970 to go work with DC Comics. Jack had become disgruntled after doing all of the work that he had done at Marvel Comics through the Silver Age. I mean, the dude was doing three books a month. 60 pages plus covers. Uh, never missing a beat. Thor, Fantastic Four, Avengers, X-Men, Captain America. I mean, Jack did it all. He uh, hit his monthly marks. He was the mo- the most uh, prolific comic creator that has ever lived in our business. No one has matched his output. No one has matched his impact. Again, if you haven't, if you've never heard the name Jack Kirby, start with the Hulk, uh, Thor, Loki, Iron Man, uh, the Fantastic Four, Doctor Doom, Galactus, the Silver Surfer. You know, uh, and then and then predating Marvel, because most people forget that that Stan Lee wasn't in the picture when Jack and his partner Joe Simon created Captain America and Bucky, and so this is uh, J- Jack is is just and and, and I didn't, I didn't even go through all of the crazy supporting cast, the bad guys, the villains, the I mean, Jack so prolific, so impactful, such a workhorse. And when I asked Jack, why did you, can I ask you, Jack, what was the secret to you doing three pages a day, sometimes four, to do 60 pages in a month? He said, Rob, I had to pay the rent. I had a family to provide for. 
If I was making $30 a page, I needed to do three three pages a day to make $100 you know, a day. Now, again, this is back in the 60s. So let's, you know, adjust our our uh, inflation uh, accordingly back then. But he decided that quantity was of the utmost and he never sacrificed quality in the interim in bringing you those in, in amazing adventures that so much is built on. The Inhumans, Black Panther. Again, I can keep going. It's it's insane. Uh, Kang the Conqueror. I mean, Immortus. It, it is literally just insane what Jack designed and uh, envisioned, created, produced. Now, by the end of the 60s, he is not happy with Marvel. He is not happy with Stan. Stan is out there in a big way, uh, touring colleges. He is the face of Marvel. The cartoons are of Jack, uh, of, of Stanley. The cartoons, the, the, the figurehead, the mantle piece is all, it all reeks of Stan. They are caricatures of Stan. They are, you know, Stan Lee is writing the intros and, and, and he, he's, he's just out there in a big way. And, and here's the deal. Nobody sold Marvel better than Stan. If nobody made comic books better than Jack, nobody sold Marvel better than Stan. So that, that, that's not a fight I'm interested in having. They both were necessary components. Uh, I believe Stan had a role beyond creative uh, in terms of curating the Marvel brand that we love so much. His voices were over the cartoons. Hey, heroes! Hey, heroes! The, hey, true believer! The wall crawler is at it again. I'm doing a terrible Stan, but again, that wasn't Jack's voice. That was Stan. Stan was up for it. He was game but it came at some of the expense of leaving Jack behind. Jack uh, Pedre, the the way he was being credited, he didn't like it. He felt like, you know, if you listen to Jack, uh, these stories are entirely his, and he has some very compelling arguments that he's made over the course of time. If you don't think that Jack Kirby has more devotees in the comic book world, then Stan, you are not a member of the comic book, uh, you know, canon of creators. Jack has a ridiculous amount of support among creators and people that worked alongside him, inkers, otherwise. Uh, these people, some of Jack's stories are um, really hard to dispute, but the bottom line is Stan uh, was the figurehead. He had the family ties to the publishing end, and as such, uh, you know, he relied on Jack. Stan will be the first person to tell you that he relied on Jack. But whatever came between them drove Jack to a deal at DC Comics where he would arrive in 1970. Very, very um, uh, celebrated in, with much fanfare. You know, the king is coming to DC. Jack Kirby is coming. Full page ads. They were, they were excited. Again, this is 1970. Now, here's the deal. Jack hits the ground running. Jimmy Olsen, which is where he starts introducing a lot of his fourth world stuff, and then the, you know, the dam breaks and Jack's just concepts, ideas, worlds just pour out and wash over the land. New gods, Mr. Miracle, the Forever People, Darkseid, Light Ray, Orion, Big Barda. I mean, uh, so many amazing con concepts, worlds. Uh, the Black Racer, Mantis. I mean, it, 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 just nothing short of jaw-dropping. 
he followed those up because in retrospect, maybe they weren't ready for that magic. That stuff holds up amazingly well, but it really wasn't the language of DC Comics at the time, which was, I spoke about it in the first episode, how just Marvel had more power and, uh, and action and, and a boldness about it. And so here comes the king of power, action, and boldness, and he's giving you all these killer new designs. And you can see how Darkseid has resonated in Apocalypse and, and all of these fourth world characters. If the new gods have never been a top title for DC, all of its components have created the modern day DC. He followed those books up when those weren't as successful as DC wanted with The Demon, Commandy, Omac. I mean, a- another triumvirate, another three books. This guy is crushing it. Uh, as a kid... 1974, I think I encountered OMAC. It became one of my uh, instant favorites. In my initial, like I said, the Fantastic Four, some 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 Legion of Superheroes, some OMAC, some Fourth World, a little, little mixture of everything before I got locked into my path with the Avengers in 1975. But the uh, the output that that Jack had at DC, as as impressive as it was, it, it didn't catch the. Commandy had the longest run, and Commandy was very much a reflection of kind of the uh, the apocalyptic landscapes that were so popular at the time with Planet of the Apes. And Commandy is a brilliant body of work. Buy it, consume it, trades, singles, omnibuses, they all exist. It's magnificent. Jack uh, is an amazing writer, illustrator, and my favorite period of Jack is this is formed in this time. I, my favorite version of Jack's art, storytelling, he was very, you know, deliberately going splash page, double page splash, uh, big images. The guy just knew how to rock them and sock them and draw you in with amazing details, amazingly staged action, uh, just amazing. Uh, stuff that your eye just can't look away from. You, you, you look deeper into it, seeing all the work that Jack put into it. Well, so, ironically, he has a falling out with DC. DC and he don't see eye to eye. There are literally vocal people at DC who don't want him there, who think that he's not part of their brand. This is so ridiculous, but it it explains the relatively quick demise of Jack's vision. Jack ends up agreeing to come back to Marvel. And honestly... Marvel was ready for him. It was just in time. And when Matt, when, when Jack Kirby comes back to Marvel in 1976, let me tell you something. He is raring to go. That imagination is still whip, whip smart, super sharp, polished. Boom. He lands, takes over Captain America in a bicentennial year. The bicentennial year in the United States of America in 1976, when I was eight years old, it was everywhere. Billboards. Advertisement, coins, stamps, posters, commercials. The spirit of 76 was a big deal. Our country's bicentennial celebration. And uh, Jack grabbed Captain America and just did not look back. And they are, that is my favorite run of Captain America. His Captain America and the Falcon. And the stories that he set up and the action and the adventure that he provided. At the same time, he takes over Black Panther launches a new Black Panther series. It is absolutely 
you know, can't miss amazing comic book that just jumps off the page. Black Panther has never been better. And this is apropos given that Jack introduced Black Panther in the pages of Fantastic Four. Now he has got the reins. And I'm just like, wow. And Jack is doing a ton of covers. The Avengers, the Champions, the Defenders. I mean, they they just, Ghost Rider. He did covers to Ghost Rider. They just filled up Jack's dance card. And I think he was all too eager to uh, really show DC maybe where they went wrong and be embraced again by Marvel in the way that he was. And here comes the Eternals. So in the mid-70s, the culture, science fiction, pop culture, is obsessed with secret civilizations. Uh, If you were a child of the 70s, which I know there's not a whole lot of us, but there was a syndicated show hosted by Leonard Nimoy, Mr. Spock from Star Trek, significant, uh, that powerful voice that was called In Search Of. And every week they would go in search of some new sci-fi mystery, in search of Bigfoot, in search of the Yeti, in search of the Loch Ness Monster, in search of ancient gods, in search of, you know, crop circles, all of this mystery, sci-fi. A lot of this stuff was uh, Aztec, and and this also was corresponding with uh, films that were coming out called Chariots of the Gods. And just, uh, which again, dealt with these alien, the idea that alien races had visited us in the past, left all these different breadcrumbs to their existence, and the culture soaked it up. Movies, books, television, and then Jack Kirby kicks down the door and says, oh yeah, you want ancient civilizations? You want space gods? I'm your guy. Here's the Eternals. And I'm going to tell you right now, the tomb of the space gods, you know, on the cover of Eternals number one, the start of Jack Kirby's long-awaited cosmic series. And uh, the Eternals introduces us to Icarus and to Circe and the idea of the Celestials. And uh, we are immediately swept up. And I always felt that this uh, was a kind of a sister concept to the new gods. It danced within those same margins. And I think Jack didn't mind kind of letting you know, like, yeah, this is kind of a sister uh, concept. And, 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 and I mean, because the new gods were, were these sci-fi gods on a different planet. And, and here we go with sci-fi gods again in the Marvel Universe. This time they're called the Eternals. Deviants, uh, Eternals, uh, where did they come from? Have they been among us all the time? And, and of course, issue two, which is entitled The Celestials, really delves into the origins of the Eternals and these massive, giant spaceships in, in this double-page spread in Eternals number two with a spaceship that I would love to see in, in the Eternals. Now, now, Taika Waititi and James Gunn have both danced with giving you the full Kirby. Ragnarok was the most Jack Kirby visuals I have seen in a Marvel film to date. I feel like we will continue along those lines with Ragnarok, but there is no way that this Eternals film doesn't reflect the same, the same visual, uh, you know, menu. It, 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 it has to adhere to what Jack did here. These are groundbreaking, fresh, very original. Jack Jack was a very original costume designer. He had a very, very specific way that he designed and portrayed things, the, the, the Kirby Manor. I mean, it, 
ages of lessons are involved in his concepts, his visual design, his character, his costuming, wardrobe. But here on the second page, second and third page of Celestials number two, the Inca legends of strange visitations from space have become a fact. You know, a ship from the stars, somebody cries out, right? So again, Jack is embracing this culture of chariots of the gods in search of ancient civilizations. And he's telling you that there are warring space factions, superheroes that have walked among us. Uh, I mean, we got, we got Noah's Ark in one of these shots. I mean, and, uh, and we expand the, uh, the, the cast in the second issue and start meeting Ajax and, and all of these other amazing Eternals, but we get our first view of Celestials. And I'm going to tell you my visual interpretation of the Celestials was Jack was trying to say, you thought Galactus was the biggest, most impressive cosmic menace that you've ever seen in the Marvel Universe, which to me as a fan, that is exactly how I took it. He was saying, you ain't seen nothing yet. The, Gal the, the, the Celestials are in fact a, a, an entire race, an entire race, of Galactuses. They were big. They, they stood over worlds. They were impressive. Uh, you know, their hand could hold a hundred people in it. And these were basically the architects of the Marvel Universe. Like everything comes from them. And I don't want to get terribly ahead of myself and because I don't know what they're going to show us. But I do believe that you're going to learn in the film that Icarus and Circe and Ajax have been observing mankind for eons and eons. They have walked among us. It wouldn't surprise me. I have no inside knowledge. This is literally just my complete, you know, uh, uh, I'm forecasting my own desire that it would be great if they showed us that the Eternals stood by and watched, you know, Loki's devastation of Manhattan while, you know, the Avengers defended it and maybe watched uh, Ultron and watched Civil War that they stood by because... At some point, you're going to have to explain why they didn't interact. But the uh, the Eternals ran for 19 issues. And again, uh, you know, Jack over time expanded the cast, created these even more impressive uh, characters and visuals and Makari and, uh, you know, uh, j just... just crazy amounts of imagination. Uh, it really felt like Jack was flexing. He was 100% flexing as he gave us, you know, Thena and, and, and I, I, it just, it just, and Icarus and the Celestials. The, the Celestials were the first time again that I, as a fan said, oh, Galactus isn't such a big deal, huh? I mean, I mean, th th this, this, this is like, Whoa, who, who is this guy? Who is this? There's a race of these characters. There's a race of these characters that look more formidable and, and, and feel like they are more powerful than Galactus, who again, Galactus was the, was the, uh, uh, kind of the go-to biggest menace in the Marvel universe. That's kind of how you understood it. And then again, along with the, New Gods uh, mirror 
echo. And again, now Jack has every right. He created the new gods. He created the Eternals. He's just extending his visual language. Someday we'll discuss in the 80s when he introduced Captain Victory, which I believe he published himself. Well, he published as an independent comic through Pacific Comics. Captain Victory has specific, I believe, very um, deliberate ties to the fourth world. It, it is meant to be a continuation, wink, wink, nod, nod, and uh, involve uh, the fourth world, new gods of DC. But we have uh, Zuras, who resembles the High Father. From Zuras is kind of the, he is described as the uh, eldest of all the Eternals and the wielder of a hundred potent power. Zuras, the eldest of the Eternals and wielder of a hundred potent powers. Okay, he is very much Jack's high father from uh, from the uh, from the New Gods. And 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 look, Icarus is an amazing character. This this he feels like Thor. He's got a very Thor bend to him with a with a shorter haircut, equally cool costume. Circe, Thena. All these characters are uh, are amazing. They they end up throwing down with the Hulk towards the end of the Eternals. Jack's original Eternal series. The Eternals even got an annual. They even got an annual out of all this because 19 issues for Jack at that time, writing and drawing was a big deal. But uh, the, he always hit his marks. These books came out every month. They were exciting. When he was done with the Eternals, about a year went by, and Thor picked up on a year long storyline where the Asgardian Eternal gods kind of clashed with these Eternals the, the, and the Celestials. And, and, and again, it was the beginning, the Celestials being woven into the Marvel Universe as much bigger than you had ever possibly imagined and kind of being the source of all of the cosmic secrets, unrest, various different races. I mean, it, they literally kind of are responsible for the race of man here. So Eternals, big deal from Kevin Feige and Marvel MCU coming out, uh, I believe in 2021. All star cast: Richard Madden, Angelina Jolie, Salma Hayek. Kit Harrington is playing Black Knight, which is you know I think they're inserting him. He's a great character uh, from from Avengers lore, Silver Age Marvel comics. But uh, it's great that he's going to be a complementary faction in this. But the story and the 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 idea here is to sell you on this massive new cosmic uh, series of characters called the Eternals. When Gods Walk the Earth was the banner atop the Eternals comics. When Gods Walk the Earth, I cannot recommend highly, more highly you getting them. There are two separate trade paperbacks that came out about 10 years ago that collect the entire series. There's the Omnibus, which is out of print that you will literally, if you look it on, up on eBay, this Omnibus is between $500 $600 they're very hard to obtain. I was fortunate to get it when it came out. Uh, they went, there, there were other Eternal series. Neil Gaiman, Gaiman and uh, John Rita Jr. did one. It's nowhere nearly as memorable as, as Jax. Jax is the gold standard. He created it. He forged it. When did it come out? 1976. Ran through 76 uh, through 77. Again, what are we talking about? The Bronze Age? What's, what, what, is there a movie coming out of this? Yes. It, what is it completely tethered to? The Bronze Age? Jack Kirby? 1976, 1977, exactly in line with the Rob Observations podcast, everything that we're discussing. Prior to that, it was Thanos, introduced in the 70s in the Bronze Age, Jim Starlin. Carol Danvers, introduced uh, late 60s, early 70s. 
goes to get her own series. Ms. Marvel, Carol Danvers, gets her own series, 1975-76, runs for a couple of years. That is the Carol Danvers, Ms. Marvel slash Captain Marvel was born in the Bronze Age. Again, you see where so much of what you're experiencing came from this period of time. It's not nostalgia. This is where these menus were formed. This is where they, you know, cooked up these amazing recipes that everybody is now looking to serve up to you. And uh, ironically, around the same time, so, 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 so Jack introduces the Eternals and gets this entire universe of characters up and running now and, and starts, and, and you know what? He's off on his own doing his own thing. They don't meet Captain America or Thor early on. They, they throw down with the Hulk towards the end of their run, you know, in, in this uh, killer, fun interaction. I don't want to spoil it for you. Uh, again, seek these books out, enjoy them, enjoy the visual language that is Jack Kirby. But what happens around that time also, so we're on, we're on sci-fi, we're in the Bronze Age, well, what else have we have we been interacting with that is all over the map with us is a little saga called Star Wars. Now, check this out. I was part of this amazing explosion. I was nine years old when Star Wars hit the cinema. But prior to Star Wars hitting the cinema, uh, they had gotten these comic books out. Now, you got, now if you... Don't understand the production of comic books. When they come out the week of the comic, obviously they weren't made that week or two weeks earlier. They were made months in advance. With a movie like Star Wars, which uh, Marvel had decided quite reluctantly to publish, those guys had to be working on it, you know, well through 1976. At, at the end of 1976 to get you those books. Uh, creating the covers, the visual language, the designs, and they were being handed still photography from the set and you'll realize this when you look at the early Star Wars comics which have scenes in them that you've heard about that eventually you've seen footage from in 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 recent you know packages of Star Wars deleted packages you know omitted scenes but but they were drawn into the comic because they were drawn into the comic book because the comic book creators had no idea that they weren't going to make the final cut. but So Star Wars is being shopped around. And uh, it is an amazing story. If you don't understand this, because Marvel Comics publishing Star Wars saves Marvel Comics and keeps them in business. Now, Stan Lee, in his own words, uh, talks about this in the 1977 Del Rey Star Wars adaptation it's a pocket book put out by Ballantine Books. I have it in my hands. 1977, I have it signed by Stan and Howard Chaikin. Roy Thomas and Howard Chaikin and Tom Palmer would do the film adaptation. But listen to this. Listen to this. Stan Lee says, It could have bombed. It was a comic book concept dressed up for the screen. It was good guys and bad guys, spaceships and blasters, costumes and magic, planets and perils. But despite all that, or perhaps because of it, it worked. Worked? It simply became the most sensational, highest-grossing media event of all time. Therefore, what could be more proper, more apt, more totally fitting than to present the magic of Star Wars in comic book form? And thus do we come full circle. Stan recounts right here how this all came to be. He says, "Now remember, this is 1977. He is. This is the the movie is is out. It's a hit. The comics are out. It's a hit." 
They're a hit. He says here in this foreword, how well I remember the day that it all started. Writer and editor Roy Thomas told me he had heard of a new movie, movie being, movie being, movie being, Science of Car Wars. He suggested that Marvel Comics do a comic book version of this. I, Stan speaking of himself, in my infinite wisdom, tossed cold water on the entire proposal, feeling that the title was lacking in both warmth and appeal, and fearing that the world was hardly ready for another ray gun, space blasting, sci-fi opera. However, when Roy mentioned that Alec Guinness was to be featured in the production, I yielded, having always been a frantic fan of that fantastically versatile performer. That's how we happen to score so towering a cultural, cultural triumph and how mankind was spared a future without an illustrated version of Star Wars. There's not much more here, but the good stuff is coming. As soon as I could, I saw the movie itself. My initial reaction was one of total astonishment. I couldn't believe the special effects, the scope, the panorama, the sheer overwhelming power of the undertaking. But the thing that amazed me the most was the love that had been poured into it. There was no campy treatment hastily thrown together to make a few bucks and get a chortle or two. George Lucas loved this theme, just as he had, just as he had loved comic books during his childhood. His love shone through every scene. And now you'll also share it with the gang from Marvel, for we love it too. And why wouldn't we? After all... Who can have a greater appreciation of these characters? C-3PO, R2-D2, Darth Vader, Obi-Wan Kenobi, Chewbacca. Or the Jedi Knights, than the blushing bullpen that has brought you Spider-Man, the Incredible Hulk, Captain America, Doctor Strange, and the Silver Surfer. He says, we've talked enough. Somewhere out there, far beyond the farthest star, reaching the further limits of our own imagination, a universe awaits you, the Star Wars beckons. So there's his, his intro where he says he nearly turned it down. He threw cold water on it. Well, Roy Thomas goes goes on to say, in his preface, he follows Stan's forward with a preface in this same book. He says, from the day in early 1976 when I first heard of a projected multi-million dollar movie called Star Wars till today when I'm helping to continue the adventures of Luke Skywalker, Han Solo, and company, it has been pure joy all the way. And why shouldn't it have been? He talks about how he had such a great time producing the pages with Howard Chaikin and how Howard was the perfect choice based on his work on Cody Starbuck, Monarch Starstalker, all these different Marvel comics. He says, it was worth it in the long run, pouring over countless stills from the Lucasfilm offices. Still photography, you guys. That's, that's what this, they didn't have a copy of the film. They had still photography. Adapting from script and stills into comic book forms, which was still far from completed, and we had thus not seen attempts to figure out how some of these things would finally look on film. The aliens in the already legendary cantina sequence, even the frustrations of seeing characters we had faithfully introduced into the comic book, such as Luke's boyhood chum, Biggs Darklighter, disappear forever into cinematic limbo for the sake of a more viable running time. Yes, it was all definitely worth it. Long live the Star Wars. We deserve it. We the millions who have seen and or will see it. And we have waited a long, long time. So they both discuss right here that it 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 was uh, the the difficulty in getting the movie made, in, in 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 getting the comic book adaptation made, and the actual doing the adaptation in that you never saw, you know, character like Biggs, uh, Biggs, uh, Darklighter, who we would eventually see in some. 
you know sequences. And if you read Star Wars number one, you know even the canyon sequence when when uh, Luke is out hunting the uh, the the what, what's he out there hunting, guys? <laughs> um, he, he he looks up into the sky stars and he sees you know quote unquote the Star Wars, and he meets uh, Biggs in 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 town in. Big says, I'm going to the Academy. Uh, you know, and, 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 and all of that didn't make the final cut. And those of us who read the comic book were like, wait a second. I, 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 these scenes are missing. It's the first time I was like, hey, where's that guy Biggs, you know? Um, Beggar's Canyon, the, the, the scenes with, with Luke in Beggar's Canyon, the, the, those aren't included in the film, and yet they are mentioned in the comic book. Now check this out. Marvel gets the license back to Star Wars. They make the most amazing uh, omnibus that they throw together here in, uh, in, in 2015 when, when it all came back. And uh, Roy Thomas talks at great lengths about Charles Lippincott. I hope I'm saying that name right. I believe I am. Charles was the marketing guy. It was important to him that he get a Star Wars comic book to market before the film. They thought it was very important that there be a Star Wars comic book that people interact with to show like that this was a viable intellectual property. These characters had a shelf life. You could interact with them in different manners. It was all part of building awareness. It's all building awareness, getting these comic books out, and a Marvel comic no less. But uh, it, it, it speaks in this omnibus, uh, you know, that, that, that Marvel publisher Stan Lee had already nixed the proposal. He had uh, uh, been told that not only Stan, but the president of Marvel, Jim Galton, had turned them down cold. They were not interested. They're licensing, uh, they were licensing two Conan books at the time, and they didn't really want anything more in terms of the licensing. And, uh, you know, but Charles Lippincott uh, was very uh, persuasive, kept, kept, uh, Pushing Marvel to to publish uh, Star Wars, and 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 wouldn't take no for an answer, and so he asked again for another meeting, and uh, Roy speaks out of that, that out of politeness and curiosity and courtesy he he went and 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 got them to sit down and uh, you know discuss the idea of 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 doing this comic book and that they eventually got. Uh, got Stan twofold and say, okay, let's give it a shot. Why not? And there have been stories that previously had Warren Publishing, who did magazines, Creepy Magazine, Vampirilla, that they had gone to Warren and Warren had turned them down, that they had gone to DC, DC had turned them down. That, that There are stories that Marvel was their last shot at getting this done and that maybe the idea that it had to be a Marvel comic wasn't as, uh, as sincere as they had sold it, but, uh, you know, bottom line, they were in talks with Marvel. Marvel was reluctant. Marvel finally decides, okay, let's go ahead and let's make this happen. Now, what you have never heard is that uh, Star Wars, this, move, this, this comic book adaptation that Stan was so reluctant to engage in, goes on and literally sells millions of copies copies for Marvel Comics. And uh, it 
It becomes a monthly comic. It becomes giant-sized treasury editions that are available at your grocery store. There are magazine-sized editions. There's the Ballantine pocketbooks that I already told you about. The one that I read from has a black and white introduction. They went on to make a color version. There was no shortage of formats that they produced this uh, this adaptation of Star Wars. Um, Roy writes right here in the introduction to the Marvel Omnibus from 2015, Star Wars turned out to be of considerable importance to Marvel. Though I did not learn this until some years later, it kept the company solvent during a very bad patch while president of Marvel, Jim Galton, was trying to turn their fortunes around. Publishing was down. Circulation was down. Marvel Comics was in the red, according to Jim Shooter, who would be the editor-in-chief immediately following this. Uh, Jim Galton did turn it around. And then editor-in-chief, I just mentioned Jim Shooter, went on record as saying that Star Wars saved Marvel Comics saved it because of all the money that was pouring in. I also need you to understand they, the, the comic books weren't just available at 7-Eleven and the liquor stores and the markets that I would uh, peruse regularly. The Star Wars comics were then sold in uh, bagged, sealed editions on spinner racks specifically for Star Wars comic books in department stores. If you went to Sears, uh, Gemco, the Treasury... Uh, uh, there was a, a place, a, a, a department store called Montgomery Wards. All of these were big places in Southern California, Los Angeles. Uh, J.C. Penney's. You had a spinner rack that only had these prepackaged, sealed Star Wars one, two, three, and then Star Wars four, five, six, and they would cost you a buck fifty, two bucks, whatever it was. And you know, nowadays they have a different. Uh, they have a diamond on them in the top corner, and that signifies them as the ones that were packaged together, as opposed to the newsstand ones, which don't have, which don't have the diamond shape. So collectors have, have really honed in on this. But Marvel went to town on Star Wars, a book that Stan thought was hokey, that was a retread. You know, when you read here, when he says it wasn't all these things, he says, uh, this was no campy treatment. This was no hastily thrown together sci-fi to make a few bucks. That's him saying, this isn't what I was scared of. This isn't why I had told everybody I wouldn't do it. This was no, this wasn't the campy treatment I had, you know, believed it was to be. That's another way of reading that because he definitely thought that Star Wars was not a great idea. His first line is, his first paragraph in his intro says, you know, that he tried to throw cold water on all of it. He feared that the world was not ready for this ray gun blasting space opera. He suggested in his infinite wisdom that they don't do it. In his own words, toss cold water on the entire proposal. This comic book would go on. There was a Marvel, I have, I have all these. They are in my office. The treasury editions were giant size, super, super duper sized comic books. Uh, as big as Life Magazine was back in the day. And the first Marvel Treasury Edition, again, was issues one through three. Then the second one was issues four, five, six. If you wanted the whole saga, you bought both of them. And then what did they do? Around Thanksgiving, Christmas time, they released both of them together for an extra buck. So now if you had bought one through three and you had bought four, five, 
and six in different collections, different covers, different back covers, different pinups. I mean, Marvel dressed this stuff up. They knew what they needed to do to get you to buy in on this. Well, then they did one combined. All all six, as big as a giant, you know, poster comic book size. I mean, these were these were enormous. I bought them all. I bought every single one of them. I bought the Ballantine books. I bought the colored versions, the black and white versions. Star Wars took off in comics the same as it did in films and cinema, and it pumped a ton of money into Marvel. And where was that mar- that money going in 1977? To finance John Byrne, to finance Frank Miller, to finance Walt Simonson, to finance Howard Chaikin. All of these comic books that you love so much may never have continued. Uh, I mean, when they say that that you know Jim Galton, the president of Marvel, was was struggling to keep it afloat. You know, that that is a, a tough nut to crack. And then, you know, to save you, you 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 get you get uh this giant money making machine uh behind you is 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 a huge, you know, godsend. It it suddenly pumps all this money in because I can't even imagine Marvel probably looked at these 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 sales figures and just were out of their minds. And Jim Shooter, again, editor-in-chief, I cannot explain to you how important he was. He's the guy that gave the green light to John Byrne's career at Marvel, Frank Miller's career at Marvel, Walt Simonson's career at Marvel. There is no Frank Miller's Daredevil without Jim Shooter saying, let's let this kid who draws, let's let him write. John Byrne, you wanna, you want your ideas to take full shape? I'm going to give you the Fantastic Four. You can make Alpha Flight a comic book. Walt Simonson, you want to give Thor's hammer to a giant horse alien and rock the comic book world, do that. You can write it and draw it. Go. Jim Shooter empowered talent. And for him to say that Roy Thomas saved Marvel, July 5th, 2011, Jim Shooter's blog, jimshooter.com, he speaks that every book was late. They were having to put unscheduled reprints and fill-ins just to keep the company on schedule. Despite his best efforts, many books were unreadable, he says. Not merely bad, unreadable. Um, he, he, he says that uh, th- there were some, some bright spots in there, but the direct market was a significant factor in saving Marvel, but in between that, they were in a death spiral. His, whole, his entire work, Jim Shooter, editor-in-chief of Marvel Comics from like 1977 to 1986, significant editorial visionary. Marvel as a company, was in a death spiral. Roy proposed we license an upcoming science fiction movie called Star Wars. Uh, Jeers followed. Jeers, not cheers, jeers. Roy continued to communicate with Marvel from California, hanging out with George Lucas, Skywalker. But the prevailing wisdom from Stan on down was that romance doesn't sell, fantasy doesn't sell, female characters don't sell, sell. He says, you get the drift here. He basically uh, speaks of the fact <clears throat> that all of the opposition to Star Wars was found in this established kind of way of thinking. And they didn't want to be adapting a movie that had... I mean, no one had heard of Star Wars. I mean, we haven't really discussed the fact that I mean, Star Wars comes out of nowhere. And Lippincott, the licensing guy for Lucasfilm, really wanted this comic book at Marvel or a comic book period as we've established. Um uh, uh, George Lucas himself, according to Jim Shooter, had met with Stan. And Stan had kept him waiting for a good long time, over a half hour, according to Jim Shooter. 
but that Roy Thomas would not let this project die. He says that in the most conservative of times and in the most conservative of terms, it is inarguable, this is Jim, Jim Shooter, inarguable that the success of Star Wars was the significant factor in Marvel surviving through very difficult years all the way through 1978. He said, uh, you know, that, that the way that comic book caught fire is what pumped all of the money that saved Marvel. So, so again, when you think about this, Star Wars and Marvel are, are hand in hand. And, and, and again, where, where are we today? We're in a, today we're in a, a world where Disney owns Star Wars, Disney owns Marvel. The, the fates of these two franchises are now uh, intertwined in a way that I don't think anyone could have imagined. Will they be intertwined forever? Don't know. They are for now. They have been for a decade. Uh, Disney has two of the biggest brands in, in the culture and and they danced with each other in the beginning not not thinking that they would make good partners and Star Wars in all of its formats and I'm going to tell you man I poured over those comics and then when they announced that Star Wars was going to continue that they were going to continue the adventures right out the shoot it wasn't it looked like a bad idea the first adaptation post the movie was focused on Han and Chewbacca and this kind of Seven Samurai story they put together with kind of this weird uh, Jedi who, you know, was kind of a funky version of Obi-Wan Kenobi and was a little bit uh, an allegory for Don Quixote. Then you've heard of Jackson, the giant bunny rabbit, the green bunny rabbit with the giant ears and the red space chute. It, it just, it, <clears throat> the art had fallen off. It wasn't the same caliber of the adaptation, which kept getting better every issue. Uh, Howard Chaikin inked himself. Then Steve Lealoa came on, and Steve Lealoa, a great artist in his own right, did an amazing job interpreting Howard's lines. The book got even prettier. Then you had Rick Hoberg, and you had Dave Stevens come on in ink, and the collection stands up today. It's a beautiful adaptation. Then we get to Howard Shake and Roy Thomas and Tom Palmer taking it into this different version. And, and, and you know, I guess the thing is, when you came out of Star Wars, you either like Luke Skywalker or you like Han Solo. I was nine years old. I can tell you on my street, Eddie, Mondo, Craig, Mike, and Mike. I had two Mikes. Mike on either side of me. We were When I moved there in 1977, we moved there in the spring of 1977, and I went from having no neighbors my own age to all the kids were nine or ten, this group of boys that I grew up with. Uh, I haven't seen them in 35, 40 years. They were the best friends of my entire life. We experienced Star Wars over and over and over again. We played Star Wars in the front yard. And I'm going to tell you right now, most of those guys were Han Solo guys. They loved the cowboy aspect. I remember watching Star Wars and clearly going, okay, Jedis are kind of like samurai. I see the the Eastern influence here, what George Lucas is doing. Again, from my movie of the week, Monday through Friday diet that I explained, I think, in the last two podcasts. I had seen a lot of martial arts films, a lot of samurai films. I understood that the Jedi were kind of space samurai. Well, then Han Solo, the minute he walks in, it's in a bar, right? A cantina. He's got his gun, you know, slung off his uh, his sidearm, is off his thigh, and is in his in his holster. He's cowboy. He's cowboy. Uh, I grew up with cowboys, Rifleman, Gunsmoke, Alias Smith and Jones, Big Valley, Bonanza. Come on, uh, I mean, cowboys were everything when you were growing up in the 70s. 
And so Han Solo immediate, okay, Space Cowboy, Space Samurai. Uh, Luke, you know, young trainee of Space Samurai. And so I came out being a Luke Skywalker guy. I wanted to see Luke battle with his lightsaber, use his force powers. And, uh, you know, look, because of a limited budget, they made that battle with Ben Kenobi and Darth Vader in that hallway on the Darth on the Death Star. They made it very close quarter uh, samurai style because they didn't have the budget to do the unbelievable action sequences that they do now. They kept it, you know, you also you had Alec Guinness and a guy in a big, you know, plastic suit. So, but I'm going to tell you, at nine years old, watching just that battle was a thrill. Lightsaber on lightsaber was all that I could think of. Lightsabers, Jedis, Sith Lords, that, that was my thing. I was not that interested in, in, in cowboys. I saw them all the time. I identified Han Solo as a space cowboy. Yeah, he's a fun personality, but he wasn't my alpha coming out of Star Wars. My alpha was Luke. So whenever we played, I, I got to be Luke because really nobody wanted to be Luke. Everybody wanted to be Han. And then whoever didn't want to be Han became Chewie, whatever. Uh, I was a big Luke Skywalker guy, and they did not follow up with a Luke Skywalker storyline for several issues. But when they did, they brought on Carmen Infantino, a Silver Age legend, who was putting out amazing work. I mean, you, you, I talked earlier how Jack Kirby was rejuvenated. Carmen Infantino was rejuvenated. And he had the best inker in the history of comic books inking him. Again, I think he came from the future. The lines he put on paper have still not been equal to this day. Terry Austin. Just flat out amazing, sharp lines, crisp images. Just 100% just the most dazzling graphics with a pen and ink, with pen and ink, with quill, with brush. The, 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 the artwork ramped up. Carmen Infantino, Terry Austin, a Luke Skywalker-themed, driven story. He crashes on a water world. Yes, a water world. Way ahead uh, by almost 20 years of Kevin Costner's water world. But, you know, one of the planets that he lands on, he crash lands his, his, his X-Wing. He's with R2-D2, uh, C-3PO, is on this water world. He gets caught up in this battle between these two different divisions, pirates. Han Solo comes in at the end. But then I'm telling you, man, the Star Wars comic books start cooking. They introduce the wheel, an intergalactic, basically, casino. Uh, so it's it's not the Death Star. It's the wheel. It's where everybody goes. It's, it's Vegas in space. Eventually, they introduce, I think this is one of the greatest things ever, the Tarkin, obviously named after you know, Grand Admiral Moff Tarkin, the Tarkin, this giant, like a, 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 a squarer version of the Death Star, looked like a giant gun in outer space. The way that Walt Simonson illustrated it, it was just like, oh my gosh, I'm still waiting to see this on film. But the stories, uh, I, the one agreement that Lucasfilm had with Marvel is that Luke and Darth Vader could not meet each other in the pages of the comic up until... Empire Strikes Back. So they kept missing each other. Darth Vader was always hot on his heels. They would tease you that they would, you know, uh, 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 meet. Um, but there were different barons and different lords that were introduced that took the place of Darth Vader that would, you know, put Luke Square in their crosshairs and, and, and they would hunt him down and you get your lightsaber battles. Uh, Leah got her own solo adventures. You got flashbacks to young Obi-Wan. If Star Wars was your thing... And you had heard that there was Empire Strikes Back coming, a sequel. Again, we went into Star Wars. I hadn't seen sequels to that point. There was no sequels in my life. 
James Bond movies were like serialized. I didn't think of them as continuing further adventures of the entire cast. So for me, Star Wars was unique. When I saw it and they got their medals, I thought, I have done this amazing story with these characters. George had left all of these different story elements. You know, Anakin Skywalker, Luke's dad, uh, whatever the betrayal with Obi-Wan, the Clone Wars, all these different ideas. The Cantina, all those aliens, bounty hunters, the name Jabba the Hutt, Han's debt. All that stuff was there. Marvel had a rich template to deal with and to expand on and to make stories. And I am telling you, for me, Star Wars was never stronger than from 1977 all the way up till, you know, uh, 1980s release of Empire Strikes Back. They probably got just in, just under 30 issues, 30 issues, without all of the developments that would come. Because once Darth Vader shakes his hand and tells Luke, I am your father, the entire dynamics of the series change. Star Wars was never fresher for me during this time. It, it was Marvel's top seller for that entire period because it was riding this incredible wave. The toys, uh, the posters, everything was Star Wars. And Marvel went from a title Stan openly writes about not wanting to the savior of the entire line that we can thank for pumping all of that money into hiring new creators that would create what you ultimately know as the Marvel comics of today. So great stories, great business deals, creative deals that have forged exactly where we are now with the Mandalorian, the Clone Wars, Rebels, all of the new Star Wars films coming from Force Awakens, Last Jedi, Rise of Skywalker, all of that. It's born right here in these deals. Disney now combines both of these brands. It's, it's nothing short of phenomenal. I look forward to Jack Kirby's Eternals. I hope that it adheres to Jack's uh, aesthetic, his visual language. Again, Ragnarok is the closest we've seen. I'm hoping that when uh, Eva DuVernay does her New Gods movie at DC, the same thing can be said. But right now, The Eternals has been shot. It is presumably in post-production, getting some great special effects. Uh, now that the world is beginning to restart and we're all beginning to resume our lives and pop culture can maybe get back to where it was in terms of films being released in cinemas, albeit with new restrictions, we can, we're going to get a trailer soon. That's what I'm hoping. So anyway, guys, thank you for hanging out with me once again. We have everything we've discussed goes way beyond nostalgia. You are getting an Eternals movie. You are getting, uh, you know, more Star Wars adventures. You are getting more Celestials. You are getting way more Jack Kirby. And it all started right here where my journey started. Okay, and we're going to continue to chart this course and see how yesterday matches up with today and where tomorrow is taking us. And again, uh, happy to have you on board. Thank you for hanging out with me. I am on Twitter at Robert Liefeld, except no substitutes. I am at Robert Liefeld. I am on Instagram at Rob Liefeld. I have, I'm fortunate enough that I have the blue checks. If I don't have the blue check, it's not, it's not me. Uh, I am on Facebook. I am all over social media. Tell your friends to listen to Rob's observations. We are talking about today's pop culture through the lens of yesteryear, how all this stuff came to be, and uh, and what we have to look forward to. And I will see you again next time on Rob's observations. Thanks for hanging with me. Take care, you guys. Stay out of trouble. Stay safe. And I will talk to you soon.